Stop it! Don't open that door! I've got a new phone. I don't like it. I had to buy new boots because the soles ripped off my old ones. I don't like the new boots. I bought new socks, though. Those are okay. Uh, Thus concludes what old man Caleb has been up to. This is the Masters of Unlocking podcast. We are a different kind of video game podcast. One is an author and avid game lover. That would be this guy, at Caleb J. Ross on Twitter. The other is a collector and recovering game store owner. That would be that guy, Scott, at VG Collectaholic. Together we delve into the business, economics, and psychology of video games. That's kind of what makes us a different kind of podcast. Other video game podcasts talk about the fun stuff, not us. We are different. (laughs) I'll say. (laughs) So today we are going to talk a little bit about uh, some changes to the ESRB labeling. Uh, We're going to talk about how they added some more text to the label because customers apparently didn't have enough text to ignore. Uh, We're also going to talk a little bit about how PlayStation Plus has made it official They have a favorite child. They are dropping PS Vita and PS3 in 2019, presumably in a basket on an orphanage front door. Uh, Also, uh, a judge has ruled, well, that's a little bit grandiose, a judge has said in one particular case that uh, a child is not allowed to play violent video games, but apparently driving recklessly in a cart while throwing bombs at other drivers, presumably with one hand on the steering wheel, is totes cool. And for the main event... We are going to talk about story in video games. Are video games good conduits for story? One jackass who wrote an article in The Atlantic last year says no. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But before we get into I wonder what your take on that subject is, Caleb. (laughs) Uh, They called him a jackass in the article. It was weird. I I thought I was, I didn't think it was very, you know, uh, they they should have had some more, uh, you know, uh, they should have had some more like um, reporting distance. What's the word I'm looking for there? Reporting distance. That'll work. Yeah. Uh, let's go. <laughs> I am the, I deserve it. I deserve to flub <laughs> through that explanation by calling someone a jackass. I don't know the guy. I'm sure he's a swell individual who probably poops his pants a lot. Let's well, talk. Well, because he's a donkey. So <laughs> That would make sense. Donkeys aren't supposed to wear pants. <laughs> yeah, so it's the donkey's fault for pooping in them. The donkey was smart enough to find its way into pants, but we're still going to give it hell for pooping in them. You stupid donkey. It's the problem with expectations. Uh, well, my expectation is that uh, you've been playing a thousand games this last week because you own well over a thousand games. So tell me all of the many, 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 certainly many games that you played this week. Okay, I'll shut up now. I'm clearing off my space on my desk here. Go. I have played one game. What? What? One game. <laughs> And that is Odin Sphere. Still playing Odin Sphere. I was diving into it last time, last episode. It's the Cartridge Club Game of the Month, cartridgeclub.org. And uh, I'm going to be talking about it on an upcoming podcast here with uh, some fellow Cartridge Clubbers. And uh, just talking about the experience of Odin Sphere. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm almost finished. Uh, Odin Sphere... For those who are unfamiliar with it, it has five, I believe, different storylines where you control a different character. And through controlling each character, you un- 
you unveil different slices of the story. So um, the first character that you play through is a, a Valkyrie named Gwendolyn. And really, by the, when I was done with that story, uh, done with that first playthrough, I was really sort of underwhelmed. And um, it just, the story felt very disjointed, very uh, n- not well told. But then as you, I discovered as you play through these subsequent playthroughs with different characters, all of whom you encounter in that first story arc, uh, you fill in large gaps and large um chunks of perspective and it it really does uh, a good job of sort of hiding the ball on you and the gameplay is very much just a a standard kind of side-scrolling beat-em-up almost but it's a neat juxtaposition against the the way the story is told so really having a blast with it are you able to and do you even know who the uh, fellow panelists will be for that particular episode of I cartridge it's going to be on the weekly episode right or it's I guess the game of the month episode yeah yep it's the game of the month episode one uh one of them will be cartridge club uh, cartridge bro p1 and I don't know if they've actually announced I know one of the uh, other folks is a super secret guest so I don't mm. uh, I don't know I don't want to spill any beans but uh, it's going to be a great episode Spilling beans is such an old timey phrase that by simply by you saying that, I feel like you're trying to give us a hint. So now I'm trying to think of all the Cartridge Club members that are somehow associated with beans, uh, and I can't think of any. So or good being on you. Old. Maybe it's a maybe it's a being old. <laughs> That's reference. true. Maybe it's a being. <laughs> well, even if it's only P1 who shows up, it'll still be a fantastic episode because at least one person there will be worth listening to. Um, <laughs> and it's certainly not on this podcast. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I'm glad it's turning around for you a little bit, uh, or I'm glad it has proven itself to be a worthwhile endeavor. Um, so I've been playing, uh, I finished up Super Mario RPG, a mm. game that has eluded me since childhood. Uh, very fun game. It's it's definitely one of those older school RPGs where it's it's kind of hard to become overpowered. They kind of gate you a little bit, and I'm I'm one that prefers to be overpowered. I would much I would much rather grind for seven hours just so I can plow through every enemy that gets in my way. Uh, This game doesn't really let you do that, and there are a couple weapons in the game that, had I not gotten them, I feel like there's no way I could have beaten the game. And these weapons that I received are not part of the standard story arc, so you kind of have to go out of your way to find them. So I can imagine as a child, uh, I am reminded why beating this game eluded me as a child. Uh, I just couldn't imagine playing it without the help of the internet or walkthrough or something. It's crazy. But it was fun. It's fun up until a certain point. uh, If you don't know what's going on, it is anyway. So Um, finished up that, had a lot of fun with it. Um, I also played and finished a very short game called The Unfinished Swan. And before you say anything, Scott, yeah, this was a game I purchased, even though I'm on a game buying hiatus. But for as all my reasons are, uh, I think they're valid reasons. Um, I considered it... uh, I considered it uh, research for an interview that I did, uh, which I'll talk probably a little bit more as we get to our main event. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I can definitely see where what remains of Edith Finch, this uh, this uh, uh, company development company, um, Giant Sparrow. I can definitely see where some of what remains Edith Finch was kind of spawned of this unfinished Swan game. Uh, they're by no means well. I shouldn't say by no means related. There is a there is a tie between the two, but in terms of gameplay, in terms of aesthetics, they're they're not the same at all. Um, but a lot of fun um, with that game, and I also 
uh, ha- am just about ready to finish up reading uh, Metal Gear Solid uh, from Boss Fight Books. It'll be my third Boss Fight Books out of, I think they have 18 total. Um, very good. For anyone who's not familiar with Boss Fight Books, or if you are familiar with Boss Fight Books, I'm going to say the same thing either way. You should really <laughs> look into them. <laughs> um, they, uh, they are... They're a series of books. We may have actually mentioned them on the podcast before, but we always have new listeners. Why not uh, promote something that I really enjoy? They're a publisher that does books specifically about a single video game. Each book is a, is about a single video game, and it can uh, the books can vary on uh, topic. They can be sort of a diary, a dev diary of the making of the game. They can be, as in the case with Metal Gear Solid, sort of a a looking back upon what memories the authors had of the game. Um, Earthbound was similar. Uh, or it can be sort of a, uh, almost like a, 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 a very narrative heavy kind of almost walkthrough with, with, the, with some snippets of context, as, is the, as was the Shadow of the Colossus uh, book that I had read. This one's a lot of fun. It's really funny. I somehow have existed as long as I have loving video games without knowing who Ashley Birch or her brother Anthony Birch are. Um, I know that Ashley Birch was the voice of Alloy from um, from Horizon Zero Dawn, which I think is probably her biggest credit. But she's apparently been around, and her brother Anthony have been around for a long time doing funny video game-themed YouTube videos. Uh, so I have been binging their YouTube channel uh, pretty much nonstop the last week. Uh, and they're very, very famous. I'm not helping them out by mentioning them here. They're, they're very well-known. But somehow they, I never, it's, it's exactly my kind of humor and somehow I never found them. So I'm really glad that I found them via this book. I'm probably the only person in the world that, that heard of them through this book. So uh, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with them. Well, I've heard of their podcasts through this podcast. So you did in fact help them out because now <laughs> I will go check them out and uh, they will have one more viewer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy very short episodes. Super kind of funny, quirky humor. Um, I believe Ashley Birch, uh, she is, she actually wrote for Adventure Time, the cartoon, for a while. Oh. And I'm a big cartoon fan, so if you like that kind of humor, you like her. She actually, I think one of the episodes she wrote won an Emmy. Um, and she's young, she's like in her 20s or something, so wow. I hate her. Of course, I hate her stupid face. Uh, so she's, uh, but yeah, she's super funny. And her brother, Anthony Birch, wrote uh, the story for Borderlands 2, I believe. So... Uh, both pretty young too, which is just, I, I don't know. It's weird to see. I'm, I think I'm officially at that age where everyone is young to me. Um, but yeah, I think you might like them. Rocket Jump is I think what Ashley Birch is writing for now and her brother, I believe are both doing it. Um, Rocket Jump is a is a, a channel on YouTube and, and they're pretty high budget channel on YouTube. A lot of subscribers, that sort of thing. Um, one of those things that pre YouTube days, they would have been a TV show kind of thing. Um, so yeah, uh, anyway, there you go. I'm glad I could pass along the, the loveliness that is, um, the Birch siblings. What have you picked up, uh, that have not played, I assume, because you only played Odin Sphere. So what kind of pickups have you done this last week or so? Well, I haven't picked up anything on the newer front in terms of current gen stuff lately, but I did go back and chip away at a couple of my gaming goals for 2018 and knocked out a couple of the more uncommon 
Sega Master System games as I continue down my path to 114. Uh, the complete set of U.S. Sega Master System games is 114 games, and I am now at 63 after adding two games to my list, uh, crossing two games off of my list, I should say. Mickey's Castle of Illusion, uh, the Disney platformer, and Super Ghouls and Ghosts. So excited to get both of those. I have now most of the... Uh, uh, rare and uncommon games crossed off the list so a lot of the uh, 51 games left in the master system set that i'm still missing are more kind of common easier to find games so that's nice to know that i'm sort of on the downhill side uh castle of illusion still isn't all that valuable i think that you can find it in good and complete condition pretty regularly for around 40 bucks but Looking at a bunch of different rarity guides and things that have been pieced together by collectors over the years, I think it is uh, one of the more uncommon and uh, probably underpriced Master System games out there. Nice. Yeah, so it was nice to get those two crossed off the list. And then another collection that I've been sort of tentatively going for, I should it um, wasn't really one of my gaming goals, but now now that I got this pickup, I think I'll have to add it. Uh, not quite posthumously yet, because the year <laughs> isn't dead, but uh, definitely a late. he's fashionably late to the gaming goal list. And that is the Intellivision. Uh, the Intellivision had 125 games released for it, and that's not counting some of the games that were released in both Intellivision branding and Sears branding with different titles, but are basically the same game. Um, so 125 games on the set list. I picked up a lot on eBay that included 40 CIB games, uh, including all of the iMagic titles, which are some of my favorite games from the era, at least in terms of their packaging. We discussed uh, discussed that a couple of episodes ago when I mm-hmm. was uh, talking about my progress toward the Odyssey 2 collection. So I guess I'm really, really getting into the collecting the old old retro stuff from gen 2 um which has kind of been fun i think it's it's at a stage now where it's sort of like post hype sleeper status where Mm -hmm. uh they they kind of peaked when the the age group that grew up with those game consoles sort of aged out of a lot of the collecting scene and the gaming scene i think and uh, now I can go back and pick up some of these things at a little bit more reasonable prices. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. so the 40 games for the Intellivision puts me, uh, adds to my previous 23, at least the ones that weren't duplicates. Uh, so that sets me at 63 out of the 125. So I'm basically about halfway through both the Sega Master System and the Intellivision sets. I don't know how you, every time we have this podcast, you have... Uh, roughly 3,000 more games to add to your collection. I don't know, how how are you still fitting this in your... I, I've never seen your house, so maybe you have this giant mansion, but I would imagine it's getting crowded in there. It is getting real crowded, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have a mansion. I live in an apartment on the East Coast, and uh, space is spendy and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, and it, it's definitely one of the smaller apartments I've ever lived in. Uh, it, I'm, I'm not in the Midwest anymore, sadly. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, you'll get there. You'll 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 get your mansion sooner or later, and you'll fill it to the brim with video games. Maybe I'll um, even make a mansion out of video games. Oh. Maybe that's it'd be, it'd be like the Coral Castle, except the 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 Silicon Castle. I love it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Do it now. Although you're gonna have you're gonna have to really get a lot of uh, home insurance to to make sure that you're not denting you know your uh, your boxes there. Um, but uh, that's uh, ridiculous and dumb, so we won't have to continue that conversation any further. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Caleb, <laughs> I know you haven't purchased anything. Yeah, that's true. You're on this hiatus. Moving on to current events. <laughs> <laughs> I, already, I already divulged my need for research. You know, if it, if it has to do with research, uh-huh. uh, I think it makes sense. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a digital-only game. Does that help? Well, the uh, digital-only doesn't count as any sort of game, I don't think. And okay, then good. technically you didn't buy it. You just rented it. And so... Ah, good call. Yeah. Great. I'm going to be renting so many games now. <laughs> I'm renting it until I die. I guess that's what we're doing with all of our, you know, once I shuffle loose this mortal coil, I will go on to the great uh, ownership's building in the sky. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Oh, man. This, uh, this podcast is going off the rails in a hurry. It is. You know what else I don't understand what it means? Uh, these new ESRB labels. Um, of course, I, I traffic in whimsy and I jest. I do know what they mean, but I don't understand them. So let's talk a little bit about what they are. They are So the ESRB, in response to um, some uh, recent uh, rulings, recent uh, uh, discussions, conversations about whether or not loot boxes are gambling, um, they've decided to adjust their uh, parental guidance labels um, on video games to sort of account for this this reality. And I think if we stopped the story right there, I think a lot of people could be on board and say that that's, you know, that's good. I'm glad you are making parents and making people aware that games contain gambling, you know, that that's a smart move. However, uh, what we've discovered or what we, what we kind of learned here is that the labels, the SRB labels, are not differentiating between loot boxes and other forms of in-game purchases. And, and that's sad because that's essentially the core of the, of the concern here. And no one would argue that a um, – and when I say they're, they're not differentiating between loot boxes and other forms of in-game, in-game purchases, those other forms of in-game purchases may be things like buying bonus levels or buying cosmetic skins um, and even virtual coins, buying music, that sort of thing, subscriptions, season passes, and even DLC, which I think is, is probably the most important one to, to keep in mind here. So these new labels, which will indicate that there are in-game purchases, will be applied to any game that has any of those things I just mentioned, meaning that this label will essentially be applied to every single game in the world because all games have DLC. The big point being missed here, of course, is that DLC is not the same as loot boxes. DLC, you're buying a known entity, a known quantity. You are getting something very specific for your money, whereas gambling, you are not. Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about why, the, the sort of logic here, maybe almost play devil's advocate to some degree, because I think there is some reason to think that the ESRB is doing something good here. I think it's just universally acknowledged that it's it's more of a show than it is of actual than than there's actual any um, indication that there's going to be an impact to buying habits I would say yeah I mean I, I think this is it's sort of a, a redux of really what spawned the ESRB in the first place and that was industry desire to do something to avoid governmental regulation uh, when back in the night trap and Mortal Kombat um, 
controversy back in the early 90s that spawned the uh, video game rating board and then what ultimately became the ESRB was the government getting together and saying, look, games industry, if you don't police yourselves, we'll do it for you. And that always goes so well. So they're like, <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out here. And I think this is kind of a, a redux of that. It's, it's the ESRB recognizing you know, uh, Hawaii actually had, has uh, legislation in their, um, on their floor being discussed now, as we touched touched on in our last episode, uh, Belgium is uh, also discussing legislation around loot crates, and I think it. This is clearly just a move by ESRB to say, "Look, we're doing something. We're you know, just forget about it. We'll, we're we're policing ourselves. We're we're fighting the good fight." When really, I mean, there as you mentioned, the, this is a label that is just going to be more box clutter on every single box uh, in on store shelves because every game for the last generation and a half has had some form of download attached to it. Mm-hmm. The I think you mentioned there, it is sort of being a redux of the '90s thing, and I think what was interesting about the um, the initial introduction of the ESRB in the '90s was that after all of the dust settled, gamers actually realized that was a good thing because it basically gave publishers carte blanche to make anything they wanted to. Now that there was a, essentially a category of adults only or mature game, now publishers didn't have to worry about creating a mature game because there's no reason for outrage because, hey, it's been categorized and tagged the right way, so shut your mouth, parents. You know, it's it's there. Um so I think from from a gamer's perspective, that actually did help gamers for the most part. This, I have a hard time believing, will help anybody um, at all, <laughs> to be honest. I just don't know what this will really do uh, for gamers. And I, I understand the whole purpose of it is not really a pro-gamer thing. It's a pro-business thing, and we can talk about that a little bit too. But I just don't see there being, a, a, afterward, after all the dust settling here, us saying, actually, that was a really good idea, and we got XYZ because of it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the president of the ESRB, Patricia Vance, came out and said, well, hey, it, there's there's criticism that this warning is nothing. There's not even anything specific to loot boxes on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the controversy is about. And she responded saying that, uh, look, we've done a lot of research over the past weeks and months and particularly among parents And they said that what they learned was that a large majority of parents don't even know what a loot box is. And some who even claim that they do don't really understand what it is, that it's really now ESRB doesn't think it's gambling, but that there's um, that there's that aspect of not knowing what you're buying encapsulated in it. So they're sort of speaking out of both sides of their mouths here. And I, I think that that that's fine that, I get that would be a reason not to specifically call out loot boxes in the warning, but it seems like they've gone and completely um, sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater here. And now you've got a warning that just encapsulates everything download and 
I mean, if everything is a warning, nothing is a warning, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf. Well, yeah, that that's just now the the new thing that's on on every single box is this new warning label. So it's sort of like the whenever you turn on a video game console, it tells you, "Oh, you warning, you might have an epileptic seizure." Well, <laughs> okay, I guess maybe. I'm always mid seizure when that warning comes on, so I'm not able to read it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Good timing, because at least, you know, then you can get into the game and it doesn't screw up your character. <laughs> Most of the games I play, though, are quick time event-based games, so the seizures actually help quite a bit, um, <laughs> I'll be honest. Well, I feel like a jerk, uh, because I am. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, yeah. We're not the masters of political correctness for a reason, <laughs> folks. Uh, I feel like there's also multiple issues being conflated in a single issue here. Um, the ESRB is dealing specifically with legislation about what parents should be able to give their children. And I think for the most part, there is a responsibility for parents to be able to govern that. I mean, if if you don't want your children, like I think there's a fair argument to be said that parents aren't always going to know everything that their children are playing. That's just too, that 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 is too demanding. I, I will never know every single scene, every single, um, you know, cut scene, every asset in every game that my child's playing. That's just impossible to, to warrant that. But what I can do is make sure that my credit card information isn't stored in the system. Like how else would they be able to purchase these things unless the credit card information was being stored in the system? You don't have to keep it stored in the system by default. So as long as I can keep my credit card out of the hands of my child and I look at my credit card statement to see if they're buying things, then that as as a parent, that's 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 what I can do. So I think the ESRB is addressing that. What's being conflated, though, is the idea of the legal uh, implications of loot boxes and whether or not that's legal. And more so, perhaps players who don't want loot boxes, especially when they change the the balance of the game. And that's something that the ESRB, to be fair, doesn't shouldn't regulate anyway. That's not it has nothing to do with uh, the ESRB in terms of whether or not a game is fun because there's loot boxes. Um, that's really a player thing. And I think in that particular case, it's really players need to, um, need to vote with their wallet. You know, I think the, 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 it's easy for people like you and me who don't play multiplayer online games to say, yeah, loot boxes are the, are the bane of our existence and they're terrible and, or the bane of game player in general's existence. And for us to speak on behalf of those game players that we perceive as being, uh, 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 hurt by this. But the truth is these games still sell and people and they're, and these companies are making tons of money off of loot boxes. So they have no business reason to stop. Of course, they're going to keep doing it. Um, so there's a lot of issues going on and I think really ESRB is doing what they can. They're doing what they probably should do, I guess. Cause again, they're not meant to police whether or not a game is fun. Um, and if it's not, le- and they don't, and I don't believe that they would necessarily have, and this is goes, speaks to my ignorance regarding the ESRB, but I don't think that they would necessarily have the, uh, the, uh, lobbying power, so to speak, to impact actual legal change when it comes to uh, what constitutes gambling or not. I don't really know that they would have a, a, I think, aren't they just sort of the body that that tries to adhere to rules, but they don't necessarily have a voice to make those rules necessarily, do they? No, no, they're just, I mean, they're effectively an industry trade group. They they oppose the, the classifications as of loot boxes as gambling, I think, because they're that if they didn't, if they came out and said, yes, loot boxes are gambling, then there's no surer way of ensuring government uh, you know, oversight stepping in. And um, I think if that were the case, then the ESRB, it's almost like a self-preservation thing. Right now, the ESRB is 
is the governing body effectively they're the the ratings board um and if you have if you had government stepping in you might have like a um you know, like in in nevada where you've got the gaming commission that effectively would take that role over so uh, i i don't think it has anything to do with them really i think it's more self self-serving than anything else i think we probably milked this esrb cow as much as we possibly can bottom line it's uh it's it's going to there's nothing we can do about it uh let's just keep buying games that we want to buy and not playing games that we don't want to play. And and I think for the most part, people just probably need to, you know, stop complaining about, uh, about loot boxes and games and just don't buy the game. That's my old man stance. I agree. But you know what I can complain about? Oh, yes. Some of my free games going away. (laughs) I immediately want to challenge you on this because I know you don't play digital anyway, or you don't buy digital, (laughs) I guess. I don't buy digital, but (laughs) I doubt I download these PlayStation Plus games every every month. So you do subscribe to PlayStation Plus? I do. I do. Knowing and it's digital the, only. The only reason I subscribe to it is because I get more space for my backup, my save backups to the cloud. Mm. Um, but I also I I will play the the games that uh, that come digitally if if it's something I'm interested in. Well, I feel bad for interrupting you. Uh, please proceed with uh, talking about this story that on the surface should in no way impact you, but apparently it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, the currently the way it works with PlayStation Plus, you get free games just like with Xbox you get games for gold. You get free games every month. The way it has worked since the PlayStation 4 came out is every month they give away two free games per platform and you get two free games for PlayStation 4, two free games for PlayStation Vita, and two free games for PlayStation 3. And some months, some months the games, the game uh, library of free games is lacking. Some months it's been rather good. Uh, They try to get a little bit of something for everybody. A lot of times the PlayStation 3 games are are older, I mean, old, you know, AAA titles. Some of them are old, more double a titles um but still it's it's stuff that's fun and and a lot of times um i mean you're just getting basically you're getting some extra value for your playstation plus money um and now that in march 2019 uh so a year from now is going away and sony has announced that they will be dropping free PS3 games and free PS Vita games uh, starting with March 2019's PlayStation Plus lineup. And it was bound to happen at some point, right? I mean, they're not going to support PlayStation 3 and and PlayStation Vita forever. Uh, Frankly, I'm kind of surprised that they kept the Vita stuff around this long, Uh, although things like limited run games have sort of and and collectors have breathed some long longer legs into the Vita than I think anybody expected. But I think the backlash that I've seen so far is that there's really nothing that's filling it, stepping in to fill that void value-wise. So you're losing effectively two-thirds of the free game uh, library every month because post this change, they're not bumping up the PS4 game uh, quantity. It's just staying two free PlayStation 4 games, and that's just it. 
so I guess my, I'm wondering how or if that will impact things. Now, the way PlayStation Plus works is that you only get access to the free games that you've downloaded during the free game month. Uh, so long as you continue to be a PlayStation Plus subscriber. So I've been a PlayStation Plus subscriber since the PS4 launched. I've got all of the free games in my you know, in my digital catalog or whatever. I mean, the, and that's basically the only thing in my digital catalog on P- PlayStation Network. Um, but if I were to cancel my PlayStation Plus account, that my access to all that stuff goes away. Uh, so I'm wondering now, does Sony just think that... Uh, the prospect of losing the, that back catalog is enough to keep people subscribed? Or do they think that maybe not enough people care about the Vita and PlayStation 3 aspect of that? My guess is the latter. I, I think it's pro- I think there's probably few, relatively few consumers out there other than hardcore gamers that have multiple, the, multiple systems anyway. I think uh, the PlayStation Vita has been defunct for a while there are a certain core group of uber fans that still love the the vita um but i think those uber fans are also probably the type of fans that really like physical media too and so they're gonna get their fill based off of uh you know your limited run games and places like that um the playstation 3 and playstation 4 what i've noticed when i was a ps plus subscriber which i'm not anymore is that often you'll get you'll see the same game on both systems so I, how many truly exclusive PlayStation 3 games are there on PlayStation Plus? Probably plenty, I'm sure, but is that really enough of a draw factor to get people to actually subscribe to PlayStation Plus? The bottom line is if these games aren't enticing people to subscribe to PlayStation Plus, then there's no use in having them on there because otherwise they're just, they're just clutter. And so I trust Sony, that I, I trust that they have the data to support their decision and it's got to be easy data to get. It's not if you if you operate an online storefront, you have data regarding how often people are playing games, how often they're downloading games, how many uh, recent subscribers. Uh, is there a correlation between the recency of subscribers to the types of games they download? Meaning, are more recent subscribers primarily downloading PS4, and past subscribers are now going from more. Uh, primarily PS3 now to PS4, so the shift is going toward PS4 anyway. Um, if all of that's, you know, I, I just have to trust that they have the data to support their decision. For me, it doesn't personally impact me at all. Um, I, I think that really with the amount of press coverage and the amount of what seems to be signs pointing to the success of Games with Gold, uh, the the Xbox uh, uh $10 a month thing. I'm not a big Xbox guy, as you can tell, because I called it the Xbox $10 a month thing. Uh, <laughs> there with that, with where that seems like it's going to be a very big success. Um, so I would imagine that PlayStation would have to go in that direction anyway. And maybe this is just sort of a preemptive thing to, to test people's, I, I don't know, maybe it is just a, a, a test to see whether or not people stick around, whether or not people really, really want that service. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's going to have much of a, much of an impact to be honest. The one place, the one point that I would push back a little bit on there, and I don't disagree with most of what you said, but the one benefit is that you don't necessarily have to own all three systems or even more than just a PS4 to get value out of that the way it's structured now. Because as you mentioned, a lot of times the PlayStation 3 and or PlayStation Vita games that are part of the uh, playstation plus library for any given month 
have cross-buy functionality. So if it's a Vita game that's being given away, you actually get the Vita version and the PS4 version. So, for example, this month in March 2018, the free free game library is for PlayStation 3, it's Legend of K and Mighty Number no. 9. For Vita, it's Claire Extended Cut and Bombing Busters. And then for the PS4, it's uh, Bloodborne and Ratchet and Clank. All in all, a relatively decent catalog of games for you know, for the month. But of those, um, actually three of the four PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Vita games are cross-buy. So effectively, PS4 owners get five PS4 games this month. Starting next year in March, that will be impossible, and the most they will get will be two. I see. That makes sense. So, I mean, I think there is just a little bit of lost value there. I, I don't think it's going to have a big impact on PlayStation Plus subscribership. Um, and I think you're probably right that I think any business would be smart to switch to more of a software as a service model. Um, we've talked about that in previous episodes, just the um, recurring cash flow model that, that ensues with it you know i think uh sony tried that a little bit with playstation now um but hasn't really nailed it um and maybe maybe adopting more of that ten dollar microsoft thingy uh makes makes some sense for some (laughs) some of the new games i think that name has sticking power i think that's what's going to catch on I really think Microsoft needs to reach out to us uh, in their marketing group. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could do good things uh, with marketing. I'm not a marketer, but I do have crayons. Um, <laughs> and I know some marketers, so maybe they could teach me. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's, I think it's worth investigating. You know, I think there's a lot of things worth investigating in this world. That's a very general statement that would allow me to segue pretty much anywhere I wanted to, because one other thing that is worth investigating in this world is the impact of violence uh, on teens and people in general, the violence in video games on people. Now, this isn't going to be before I before I even roll out what this story is going to be. It's not going to be, let's talk about violence in video games in a very grandiose fashion, because frankly, that's probably not the kind of podcast this is, and it's been done to death. Uh, but this was a particular story that kind of piqued my interest. Um, there's a Chicago high school sophomore who was ordered by a judge to stop playing violent video games. Um, that was sort that was the punishment that this uh, kid uh, was given. Um, apparently the 16 year old high school student um, went onto social media and uh, in a snapshot video, clip of himself uh the video showed him playing a shooting game and in the clip he wrote y'all need to shut up about school shootings or i'll do one now tasteless of course uh dumb sure absolutely it is especially in light of the uh most recent school shooting he is 16 years old (laughs) he's 16 i said some stupid stuff at 16 (laughs) i think we've all done some dumb stuff at 16 so dumb stuff was the only stuff i did at 16 (laughs) so i think uh you know there has to be a certain amount of maturity uh, uh uh that this person is should be expected to have now uh as they grow older and so what i kind of wanted to talk about was just this uh, this judge ordering the student to not play violent video games. Um, I think the the actual uh, 
the the judge judge robert anderson is the name of the judge um he let the teenager's parents take him back home after being charged with uh basically being a, a jerk or a turd um and uh the parents took him back home uh but it was on home detention and he and he ordered that the boys a cell phone be turned over to his parents and also banned him from playing violent video games. However, Anderson, uh, the judge, did say you can play all the Mario Kart you want, which I think further goes to show that there's no real science behind uh, <laughs> violence and video games and how they impact people because Mario Kart's a pretty violent game. Especially uh, it's for just... a 16-year-old who obviously just got their driver's license. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Um, it is more colorful, I guess, and less realistic, which there's validity to that statement. So I won't, I won't denigrate the argument too much, but that is just a a weird little thing there. So, I mean, I think this is, judges do this sort of thing pretty regularly where it's probably not even an actual, um, an actual sentencing. It's just sort of a, um, almost family court-esque kind of, uh, way to try to get the attention of of a teenager right it's like a uh almost like a a wake up you stupid little shit sentence <laughs> um but i mean i so we could we, i could i actually have a fun story to tell about my my teenage years and something somewhat similar i can't um, wait yeah yeah so in the the Early, early collectaholic years, uh, I was a huge baseball card collector back in the 80s from like about, I would say, age seven through probably 12 or so. Baseball card collecting was all the rage. It hadn't sort of phased itself out yet. And I think I was in about sixth grade. So I was probably, I don't, I don't even know, like 11 or 12. Does that seem right? Probably 11. Um, and one of my friends dared me to steal a pack of baseball cards from the local grocery store. So I thought that was a fantastic idea, right? <laughs> because, you know, I was full of piss and vinegar. And uh, so I tried to steal this pack of baseball cards, immediately got caught. So my my burgeoning life of crime really was very short-lived got arrested <laughs> police car the whole deal taken to the courthouse my father worked at the courthouse so that went over real well <laughs> um <laughs> basically had to go through like this whole um you know court case type thing and and really it's I feel like it was looking back on it probably more for show than anything else. But the sentence that I got was that I was banned from buying baseball cards for a year. And of course that was devastating to me because at, at 11, a year is, is like longer than any, any 11 year old could ever even imagine. Um, <laughs> and it actually had the effect of breaking my baseball card addiction and the unintended consequence of throwing me so heavily into video games that I started collecting <laughs> video games and and now I'm here. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> was your response to the judge, well, judge, uh, I wasn't planning on buying video or I wasn't planning on buying baseball cards for a year anyway. I was going to keep stealing them. That was that's what stealing is. <laughs> right, he never said don't steal video game or baseball cards for a year. <laughs> it was really short-sighted by this judge. It was. And, 
now that I look back on it, a lack of logical processing capability by uh, one young <laughs> VG collectaholic. I think you need to hunt this judge down and not only tell him how uh, you're now addicted to video games, but you're also a lawyer. Um, so <laughs> he, I, either he had a, a huge impact on you or no impact at all. Who, who knows? Yeah, I, it's tough to tell. I mean, it would probably would take up a hell of a lot less space to continue collecting baseball cards instead. Yeah, but I feel like if you're collecting baseball cards this day and age, uh, you probably have to invest a lot of maybe perhaps your saved money in mental therapy because I'm not really sure why you would collect baseball cards. Are those even – I we've talked about this before, I think, but I'm not even sure those are a thing anymore, are they? Like I don't remember seeing them in a store ever like recently. No, I feel like there are some sorts of cards like – up next to the checkouts at Targets and Walmarts and stuff, but I think they sell them basically by the box now instead mm. of the, by the pack. And I, th- I feel like it's just collectors and I mean the people that are clinging to you know their their youth by collecting something that they grew up collecting. And you know <laughs> I mean that's just utterly insane. I don't know who the hell would do that. <laughs> you know nothing about that. <laughs> Yeah, at our Target, uh, it's all Pokemon cards, Magic the Gathering cards, uh, some of those new Garbage Pail Kid cards. They re-release those. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, and that's it. I, I don't, I don't think that there are any um, baseball cards. I'm gonna have to check next time. This yeah, you have to follow up and and let me know. So I will. This is riveting I, podcasting. It is riveting, yes. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing we do well, it's not podcasting. <laughs> uh, speaking of riveting, uh, that was a riveting tale that you told us. I'm really glad to have been in a position where I could enjoy a story in a format other than a book, because I think story can be relayed in a lot of different ways, right? Podcasting is a great medium for storytelling, I find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there's there's pro- possibly many mediums out there that are great for storytelling. Um, I don't think they should be restricted to just paper uh, between covers, but maybe perhaps my uh, my opinion is a is in the minority um, because this brings us to our main event where we will talk about an article in the The Atlantic called "Video Games Are Better Without Stories." Subtitled, film, television, and literature all tell them better, so why are games still obsessed with narrative? And people who are familiar with this article may be wondering why we're talking about it so late. This article was uh, published in The Atlantic, and The The Atlantic, sorry, uh, in April of uh, 2017, around the release of What Remains of Edith Finch. And uh, you, you frequent listeners will know that uh, Scott and myself are playing What Remains of Edith Finch, um, and we will be discussing it on a future episode. So that was sort of the impetus to being uh, drawn to this article. Um, but also the fact that I am an author uh, and narrative is kind of important to me. Video games are important to me, and I've always thought of them as kind of one of the same in a lot of ways. So for me to be confronted with an article that claims the claims the, the very contrary to what I believe, of course, is something I'm going to read. Um, and I think there's also an element of this article, uh, and I promise I will get into the actual context of the article, but just based off the title alone, I think there's an element where this author was probably trying to be a little uh, confrontational, a little uh, a cr- create a little bit of controversy, because I believe in a larger video game world, the idea of narrative in a video game is not a crazy thing, and most people accept it. Most people think that it is a valid medium for story. Uh, so I, 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 
we have to well, kind of approach it from that aspect too. Well, the author is a college professor, so I mean, it's it, it's his job to yes, uh, come up with theories and concepts that probably have no actual bearing on, on real life. Exactly. Yeah. So I will start with the author though, because I think he, he, that's probably going to be a, a refrain as we talk through this article. Um, because I think the, the author is, uh, this is, this is an opinion piece that could really only come from this particular type of author. So when you first look at his bio, um, his name is Ian Bogost and he is a game de- game designer himself. So he has the, the bona fides there. He is a college professor, as you mentioned. Um, he is, uh, and he, he specifically teaches, um, interactive computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology, at least at the time of this article's publication and, and media studies. Ah, yes, and media studies. Thank you. Um, And so he's also written a book called Play Anything. Um, And I think the book, I haven't read the book, but the title of the book really kind of, I I have read a lot more about this author, but the title of this book um, very much, I think, positions Ian Bogost in in a light uh, that does not shine favorably upon his his feelings toward narrative and video games. So the book is called Play Anything, The Pleasures of Limits, the Uses of Boredom, and the Secret of Games. Uh, Boredom being the primary word there, because as I've learned uh, by reading about him is he has this, and in this article too in The Atlantic, he has this very narrow concept of what a video game is meant to do. And he's very much in, on the side that video games, their primary purpose is essentially to eliminate boredom, um, which I, is a very reductive way of looking at video games, I think. And I think most video game players would, would, would agree with that. And even his video game design history itself would indicate that. It looks like he's designed some, in full transparency, I haven't played any of his games, but just based off the visuals of the games and based off of reading about them, they're very much sort of mobily clicky type of games. Uh, one of his games is literally called Cow Clicker, which so I have to assume that is a clicky, tappy, kind of mobily kind of game. Um, Always the best kind of games. (laughs) So if understanding that this Ian Bogost is coming from a perspective that games are cures for boredom and that's really it, then sure, his argument is his his argument that that there's no room for narrative in video games. On the surface, that's what he's saying. Um, But to me, as I was reading through this article, it struck me as kind of hilarious how much he's trying to come across as though he is open-minded when he's clearly not. So he does talk about uh, two games in particular as being games that that try to be narrative and try to to really um, you know create a story and that's gone home and what remains of Edith Finch both games that superficially are very similar so he's really kind of choosing two games but making one argument with these two games and that's that narrative in video games can at best be, a essentially what's equivalent to a YA novel. Um, both of those games, What Remains of Edith Finch and Gone Home, star young female protagonists who are sort of trying to find themselves, learn about their their family um, in much the same way that a, that a young adult novel of this ilk would. So he's using these as these these proxies for the larger conversation of narrative, which is already just way too reductive. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but then he also tries to uh, he talks a lot about puzzle games and other games that are never meant to be story and uses those as examples to say, look, story and game doesn't work, you know, um, which, again, doesn't make any sense at all because there are plenty of examples out there where uh, video games uh, do give great, great stories. And I think What Remains of Edith Finch is, is one of them, even though he doesn't necessarily think that's the case. Um, so it's an article that kind of angers me to some degree. Um, I think he, Ian Bogost kind of 
falters where a lot of academics falter, and that's trying to uh, imply certain amounts of logic while not actually being able to uh, validate anything. It's the equivalent of saying, of leading an argument with, well, some would say that Hitler was great, but I don't think so. And the implication being that there's a whole world of people out there that are like really, really super pro-Hitler. I guess in the world of neo-Nazis, I should probably choose a different uh, a different uh, thing about it. Okay, maybe he, some would say that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, I can't even think of it. I'm so just angry at <laughs> I mean, this article. It's sort of a straw man argument, right? Where you, you set up something um, that is easy to knock down as your counter. Thank you. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, when, when he talks about what remains of Edith Finch, he goes on, he talks about really, he gives it a really gushing almost intro and says, it's got great ambiance. It's got um, great, uh, great, puzzle you know puzzle aspect but then it goes he goes on and says really my only criticism of edith finch is uh quote and yet the game is pregnant with an unanswered question why does this story need to be told as a video game (laughs) so like you go on and on for paragraphs and paragraphs ad nauseum about how games can't recreate the intrigue or storytelling in movies and books and then the one criticism that he has to lay on what remains of edith finch is well but it's a video game (laughs) and what's really funny about this too is you could you could really see his pompous academic attitude because the wordplay there, and yet the game is pregnant with unanswered questions. Uh, what Remains of Edith Finch features a pregnant protagonist, um, which I'm not spoiling really anything. You do overtly learn uh, or, or explicitly learn that she's pregnant at the end of the game, but you, if, you're, if you pay attention to the game, you learn that she's pregnant much earlier than that. So that's kind of funny that he kind of chooses that, uh, that verbiage there. But you're right, that's his criticism, is that it's a video game. Um... And so if, if, if we follow that logic and we say, okay, if his only criticism is that it's a video that, that it's a video game and that the story could be told better through another medium, does that really mean that video games shouldn't tell stories or narrative stories? He he talks a little bit about Bioshock, and Bioshock I think stands as one of the first uh games. It's sort of one of the games that showed how to create or how to imply narrative through uh level design. Um and that alone, I think, is valid narrative. Narrative doesn't have to necessarily be overt. It doesn't have to be exposition. Narrative doesn't mean exposition. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's not narrative. So maybe that's that's my problem is that he's conflating narrative with expo- exposition because you can have, I mean, I mean, for Christ's sake, Tetris, uh, you know, there's a three-part movie coming out about the video the puzzle game tetris i don't think there's too many people out there that would argue passionately that tetris has a strong narrative but the truth is if you have conflict you have narrative now it's up to the uh the audience member to be able to impart a certain amount of narrative and i think that there are definitely artists out there that are a little bit lazy and they they don't give the audience a bit of a, a, a carrot to kind of follow um so, you know, if if the person creating Tetris thought that Tetris was a narrative game, I would say, well, then you probably failed to give people enough to really care about in that game. But there is conflict in that game. Anytime there's conflict, there's implied narrative. So 
uh, I think that there's, I think he's just very, very uh, limited in what he's going to, in what he's trying to argue here. I think he's, he seems like a smart guy. He just, this doesn't seem like the argument he should be having. Yeah, no, I, you mentioned the, the narrow view of what games should do. And I would, I would expand on that and say that it's also a very narrow view of storytelling. Uh, he, he sort of pigeonhole storytelling as really the the movie or novel uh, method of storytelling when storytelling can be so much more storytelling even within movies or or stage performance is a vastly different art it's storytelling on in a live play is much different than storytelling in television or storytelling in a cinema or storytelling in a novel uh, he goes on and, and sort of lambasts em, environmental storytelling, but uh, I think there's something to be said for environmental storytelling done well in something like Bioshock, where it is sort of its own medium, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, Bioshock, as you mentioned, does does that very well. It does sets it with the ambiance, sets it with uh, the characters that you encounter the 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 story elements that you encounter through all of the little clues and 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 um tidbits that you piece together to form the overall story it's it can be much more subtle than a a story that's in a cinema that just sort of smacks you in the face as you sit there passively as a you know a passive consumer Mm -hmm. um he he talks about in the in his answer to why does Edith what remains of Edith Finch need to be told as a video game, he talks about cinema envy, and to me this seems very like an argument that someone who is a media studies professor would make, saying <laughs> like, well, clearly you know the the cinema is the the peak of entertainment, right? It's he goes on to talk about how the game industry has long dreamed of overtaking Hollywood to become, quote, the medium of the 21st century. Well, I would argue that video games have been the media of the 21st century for years at this point. I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the revenue numbers between gaming, films, and music, and it, it's it's not close. Even if you were to gross up... so. In 2014, the gaming industry took in almost $84 billion worth of revenue. Films took in $36 billion at the box office, and music took in $15 billion. So if you were to add box office receipts and the music industry revenue together, they would still be just barely over half of the gaming industry. Now, critics of this argument have said, yes, well... If you just look at box office receipts, you're not in capturing the entire uh, film revenue stream. Whereas if you look at the $84 billion in gaming, you're looking at PC gaming, you're looking at console gaming, you're looking at mobile gaming. You're really capturing the entirety of the gaming industry. Well, if you sort of study the way films make money, you can sort of peg the box office as a barometer for follow-on sales and follow-on sales being everything from uh, international cinema revenue to um, DVD sales, Blu-ray sales, streaming rights with Netflix, Hulu, 
Amazon Prime, and then ultimately the the televi- television you know television syndication revenue, and box office receipts generally account for um, about you could you could gross that up by about two x, and that's kind of the overall on average revenue generated by films. So if you were to take thirty six billion and gross it up by about 2x i mean you're at about gaming industry revenue and that was in 2014 and gaming is growing at an exponential pace higher than film the film industry so um i think that it's just a a it's a it's another straw man argument that well the game industry is just jealous of hollywood (laughs) i would argue that it the reverse is true because they're definitely going in yeah, they may be equals now, but they have been going in different trajectories for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was a uh, when I was an undergrad, I, I I wrestled with this idea that there is a perfect medium for every idea, um, and I don't know that I fully believe this anymore. But for thought experiments, let's let's play through my my old logic here. So, if I had an idea for a, for if I had just and something that I wanted to express, an idea that I wanted to express in some way, it, it what's the most important medium? What's the perfect medium for that? Should it be a long form poem? Should it be a a a novel? Should it be a movie? A short film? Should it be a short story? I mean, any sort of these any artistic medium. What should it be? Now that puts a big burden on the artist to know the strengths and weaknesses of all these various mediums and to be masterful at all these various mediums as well. So that's a huge burden that's just simply not uh, not realistic for someone to know. So if I sort of remove myself from that, then I have to think, well, what are at least the obvious strengths of each individual medium? And I think someone who makes the argument that cinema is the highest form of medium media is making that argument because they're comparing it to, say, the static single frame of a photograph or the static single frame yet a little bit more um, malleable uh, painting for example or the uh, uh, you know the 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 uh, higher point of entry to say a longer form poem where you're relying on a lot of you know uh, 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 a lot of uh, metrics and beats and things like that from within the within the various stanzas and things like that so cinema I think is maybe one of the most accessible I don't know that it's necessarily the best and maybe being accessible accessible is so important that therefore it can be conflated as being the best in some way and knowing that cinema itself has such a wide range of good and bad you can have a terrible movie you can have a very great movie artistically important movie you can have a narrative driven movie or you can simply have a series of you know jackass uh 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 you know, clips from, from, you know, uh, just dumb things that you can have, you can force together into a video format. The common thing between all of those that isn't necessarily the case with video games is that the frame itself is very structured. The, the angle, the viewport is, is governed by a, is, is governed. You can't change the viewport in a video or in a movie, in a, a book, um, and in an art, in a painting, in a poem. You can't change the viewport. It is, it is one person or one team's viewport. With video games, you're given the freedom in most cases to change up the viewport. Um, and I think that lends itself to a connection to the medium that you can't have with other forms. So I, I would argue almost that if you really wanted the audience to be sympathetic to the protagonist, 
a video game is probably going to do that, at least a, a very well-made video game. I can't use vast generalities here, but a very well-made video game is going to be able to do that in probably a more successful way than other forms of medium. Just by default, you can inhabit a character physically, and that's going to to relay a certain sense of sympathy. Um, I When I was talking with, and this will get into uh, a, a little bit of what's maybe to come in a future episode, but I alluded to earlier that I was playing The Unfinished Swan as a way to uh, do some research, and that research is for an interview that I conducted with um, Ian Dallas, who is the creative director at Giant Sparrow, the company behind What Remains of Edith Finch. Um, we'll be airing that interview here in a future episode of the Masters of Unlocking podcast, but I bring it up now because... There was one really, really cool thing that that Ian Dallas said. So I actually posed to him the question from this article, why does What Remains of Edith Finch need to be told as a story? Um, I brought up this article. Um, I had listened to previous art- previous podcasts with Ian Dallas, no, and I had known that he had read this article. So as soon as I brought up the article, we had a shared chuckle because we both kind of knew it was bullcrap. Um, <laughs> but I asked him directly, I said, so why does What Remains of Edith Finch need to be um, told as a story or told as a video game. And I will not spoil the answer because I think it was a really good answer um, that he gave. But in that answer, one of the things he did talk about was a particular scene um, in What Remains of Edith Finch where you play as a character named Calvin, a small child, a small boy who's on a swing. And the scene opens up, you're sitting in the swing, it's a first person, uh, first person view, view. So you see your hands on the chain of the swing, you see your legs dangling under the swing. And that's all you're given. You're not really told what to do. So, of course, as the gamer, you use the tools given to you and sort of explore and figure things out, and you start moving the analog sticks. Well, you realize that each analog stick is a different leg, so you start moving the analog stick around. Now, every time I play this this scene with a new person, their first reaction is, I want to get out of this swing, and I want to explore. Well, you learn quickly that you can't do that. You're stuck in the swing. That's where the, that's where the author, that's where the creative director, the, the director, whomever, that's where they want you to be is in the swing. So you can't move. Um, And then you slowly kind of realize that um, moving the legs independently doesn't do anything. So what you have to do is move the sticks at the same time so that your legs move at the same time so that you can start getting some height in your swing and you can actually start swinging. And in that moment, you, you, you you are inhabiting the body of a child learning how to swing in a way that I, I would argue a book simply cannot do, that cinema simply cannot do. You're literally having to learn how to swing in a way that a child would, and that's a state that that can't be matched any other way. Um, and and it's it's sort of a revelation when you start sort of realize and understand the physics of a game, and you start understanding how gravity's working when you're trying to swing, and that's something that just can't be replicated. So, could you tell what remains of Edith Finch as a different in a different medium? Yeah, you probably could. Would it be as effective in total? Maybe. Would certain scenes be as effective? Absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. So it's so definitely look forward to that interview. But but uh, I had a great time talking with him. I'm hoping he had a great time talking with me. Um, and so yeah, uh, this article's bullshit. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 final paragraph of the article reads: If there's a future of video games, let alone a future in which they discover their potential as a defining medium of an era, it will be one in which games abandon the dream of becoming narrative media and pursue the one they are already so good at, taking the tidy, ordinary world apart and putting it back together again in surprising, ghastly new ways. And I would... 
why are those two things mutually exclusive? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right? Why give up? Why give up the the dream of being able to do both of them? When I mean that just seems like a, a lazy answer. It seems like um, you know, you you have you get halfway to the moon and think, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> uh, just go home. It's very true. Why? And even the way he describes it, it's so funny because I would argue that a situation in which you are able to take the tidy, ordinary world apart and put it back together in surprisingly ghastly new ways is in and of itself a world in which narrative is the conduit for that to happen. Like, how could you how could you even know what a tidy, ordinary world looks like unless you have a grounding in our current world? So you as a view you have grinding in our current world and so putting it together in surprisingly ghastly new ways why are they surprising or ghastly there's got to be a reason that you think they're surprising and ghastly and that again is starting to lead into narrative and as soon as you introduce a character name that's narrative but once something i read um and i'll leave it at this because this is sort of the topic that um i'm really interested in but i can also get uh heated by as you can tell um i read a book uh, i believe it's in one of two books so i'll name both the books both of them are really really great but i don't know which one it is i can't remember which one it's in it's either in a book called uh why we read fiction by lisa zunshine um it's a theory of story and, and things like that so theory nerds like myself would enjoy it um, but there's also a book called The Art Instinct by Dennis Dutton. Um, one of those books talks about how every piece of of art, uh, specifically narrative art, has three inherent characters or inherent personas, I guess I should say, to keep it, you know, uh, across all mediums. So three inherent personas. There's the the artist themselves or the writer or the director, whomever. There's the reader. And then there's the protagonist. Those three things always exist. And those things, three things are always having to be recognized as existing. Like as a reader, you can't read a book without also knowing that there's a protagonist involved and that there's an author who, who created this work. As an author, you can't create something without knowing there's going to be a reader and there's going to be a protagonist. The protagonist exists because there is an author and a, and a reader. So all of these things are always present no matter how overtly you state it. So I would argue that in Ian Bogost's final statement – He's ignoring the fact that those three things are already present and therefore narrative is already a part of what he's insisting is 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 not applicable to games. Um, so yeah. getting right back to the narrow, you know, overly narrow definition of what storytelling is. Yeah. And the fact that you're putting something back together in a surprising way that that is storytelling. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. Yeah, um, this, fun for me anyway. No, this was a this was a fun episode. <laughs> we got to dive into got to dive into some more psychological topics. I Ooh, love it. there was I some businessy stuff in there too. We are a different kind of podcast. It's oh. true. Oh, we're we're, we're different people. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Here. Um, I, I think one thing we don't say too much on this podcast or enough on this podcast is um, if you have any thoughts or uh, you know feelings about this, please definitely reach out to us. We always promote ourselves at the end, but we don't necessarily give you a very strong call to action to do that. So we're going to read off uh, where you can find us individually and collectively. Um, And as we read these off, think about which medium is uh, the one that you like to visit the most and start thinking about ways that you can respond to the various topics we brought up. We would would love to have conversations with you on the various social meds 
um, social means as they're called. And uh, we, we, we genuinely want to have a conversation with you and we want to be able to talk and we want to talk about your, ta- your, your comments and everything maybe on a future episode. Um, it's really, it's fun for us. So you can find Scott or VG Collectaholic at, on Twitter, at VG Collectaholic. That's VG Collect Aholic as it's spelled uh, or pronounced, <laughs> of course, as it's spelled. <laughs> uh, you can also find him at Facebook forward slash, same thing, VG Collectaholic or VGCollectaholic.com or Instagram.com forward slash VG Collect. You're probably getting a pattern here, VG Collectaholic <laughs> on Instagram. Um, you can find us collectively at Masters of Unlocking on Instagram, uh, MOU Podcast on Twitter, mastersofunlocking.com which you could find links at mastersofunlocking.com to all of these other links I'm talking to you about so definitely if you forget anything just remember mastersofunlocking.com or at facebook forward slash mastersofunlocking or you can find me at Caleb J. Ross pretty much everywhere on twitter um, on uh, the domain calebjross.com uh, you can find me on on facebook if you want though I don't hang out too much there and on instagram and all those kind of places so definitely carrying the conversation with us uh, and look forward to the future interview with Ian Dallas um, we'll be doing a really cool thing where the first half of the episode will be the interview uh, with between me and Ian Dallas um, and then the second half of the episode will be me and Scott talking about our play throughs of what remains of Edith Finch and possibly talking about as um, as the uh, conversation goes in that direction about various things that maybe myself and, and Ian Dallas talked about. So um, look forward to that. It's the it's our first interview that we've ever done on this podcast, and I had a whole lot of fun doing it. So if there's other people out there that would want to talk to me, I will likely in, uh, embrace that opportunity. So... Thank you so much for listening, and uh, be, please be sure to, to subscribe to us on iTunes um, and Google Play Music and any of the other uh, podcasteries that are out there, and please leave us some reviews. Um, we would really, really, really appreciate that. If, you, if you're listening to this whole commercial at the end of this episode, then you obviously like the podcast. It's the old NPR excuse. Uh, if you're listening to NPR during their pledge drives, then you must like them. So pledge. Um, in our case, subscribe. You must like us. Thank you so much. And we will look forward to talking in your ear hole next time. Bye-bye.